0: This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Fallon Shea is a self-described rose devotee and rosologist, currently making her life with roses in Southern California. She and I caught up in late February for her to share more about her life history as an artist, a professional grower, a floral designer, and garden consultant. Wherever you might be right now, metaphorically or literally, I invite you to sit back and enjoy this conversation with the capable, knowledgeable, and heartfelt creative Fallon. She starts off by sharing with us what being a rose
1: devotee looks like for her. Well, I consider myself a rose devotee, which basically to me means that I spread w- rose awareness. I like to showcase their varieties and their personality through different modes of my how I can express that. So gardening is a huge part of it. Roses kind of tricked me into gardening. I wasn't a gardener. (laughs) They've guided me to this beautiful practice of interacting with nature, um, which I'm forever grateful for them for that. Um, But they've also helped me showcase them through my designs and through helping others build their spaces. So I kind of have a three-part Devotion for them, which is my undying love for them, sharing them with others through gardening, but also creating with them. So, giving them an afterlife, whether that's through the vase or through creating with them with art. So, that's kind of where I am right now. But roses, for me right now in my day to day life, they provide meaning. Um, and a lot of peace. Where do
0: you live and garden? And tell us about the roses you grow in your gardening
1: practice there. So right now I'm in San Diego. This is my third year here. And I did not grow up here. <laughs> I am from um, Petaluma or Northern California, about 45 minutes north of San Francisco. And that's where I spent most of my time um, growing roses. And I moved down here about three years ago, um, kind of unexpectedly. Um, The property that I had been taking care of and kind of a caretaker over was sold. And so after being there for 10 years, I relocated to San Diego, where I have my grandmother, who's 89 this year, and I love to spend time with. Um, (laughs) But contrary to what people believe, um, she's not a gardener and she does not like fragrant flowers at all. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) living with her um, in San Diego has its challenges because we are right on the coastline. Um, I'm used to growing roses inland, um, but I am growing many varieties here. So I started with a small collection that I drove from Northern California of about maybe seven roses of my most beloved um, collection, hybrids. But Uh, recently in the past three years, I have really gotten into species roses and the wild roses that will thrive regardless of circumstance and weather. Um, So I am growing a lot more diverse roses, um, roses that have a deeper history, which have gotten me deeper into the, what I call the rose rabbit hole of my studies. Um, But yeah, I think mostly for me, I really want to show people the diversity. They're there's so much more to a rose than being red, urn-shaped and thorny. So,
0: before I dive deeper into the rose rabbit hole as you beautifully articulated, uh Let's go back just a little bit. Um, and you—you you started us off. You—you you were in Petaluma in Northern California, and you have a grandmother who's eighty-nine and doesn't love fragrant roses. Yeah. We'll talk more about that. Um, yeah, please. So <laughs> tell us a little more about you know how you were raised, uh, and and who were the people and plants and places if there were additional ones to where you were in Petaluma, that grew you into a kind of person who would drive with her car full of roses um, and think about trying
1: to cultivate them in these ways, Fallon? I have to start you off. I was 19 when I fell in love with roses. Ah. And that's an interesting time in a lot of people's lives. Um, I, but yeah. either way to say it, I mean, I was lost. I It was just after high school. I was trying to— figure out you know, the big question that we all think about, that we think that we can decide in high school, which is, <laughs> what in the world am I going to do for the rest of my life? <laughs> I had a lot of ideas, and a lot is an understatement, but I was greatly influenced by people around me. Um, at a very early age, <clears throat> I saw my parents and their relationship with work and their computers, and it Impressed upon me um, pretty dramatically as a young kid. Um, I remember asking my parents why they loved their computers more than they loved me, and mm. them explaining that you know that's not that's not why we're dedicating this much time to the computers. You know, the computers provide our house and they provide what we have, and it's our way of living. And for me, um, I looked elsewhere. I I looked to my neighbors. One of my neighbors. It was a beautiful writer and her son I watched grow up and he really flourished with art. Um, Art was, is who he is. That was his plan and his focus. I don't even know if (laughs) he knows how much he impressed upon me, but he kind of gave me permission to explore. So I did. And during community college, I took art history, law, interior design and sociology. But I heard a whisper from a friend um, who Told me about a rose nursery, and I kind of rolled my eyes. I think as an artist, I stayed away from roses because they're kind of like a cliche symbol. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in drawing like iris and um, just other things, and um, trying to find my own way. And someone told me about a rose nursery, and uh, I thought, well, I know I want to be outside, so I will start there. So I did, and then I took on a week working at a rose nursery in Petaluma (laughs) out in the country Mm. between a dairy ranch and a cattle farm. My one-week test trial turned into a 10-year dedication to a property called Garden Valley Ranch, who was started by the great and late uh, Rayford Riddell, who wrote the Rose Bible and was a rose uh, rose devotee and advocate um, himself. And so I kind of took it upon myself to make that property um, a real rose oasis and beyond the property, spreading it out into the world and sharing what I found in roses with others. And so that's kind of evolved my relationship with them um, from (laughs) just kind of avoiding them to really becoming obsessed. And to be quite honest, I didn't think it would last this long. Um, My timid relationship with them, like a lot of relationships in the beginning, was... Um, I was on edge. I was a little nervous, you know, but <laughs> the deeper you get into a relationship with some someone or something, um, you relax, you become a little less like hyper observant and neurotic, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> and relax and um, just kind of fall into a natural progression. Wow.
0: So that must have been really heartbreaking to then like hit that 10-year mark and have a forced separation from your cultivation practice at the time and be sort of asked by the universe, okay, what what are you going to do now with Mm -hmm. that? And Mm -hmm. um, so one of my questions here, Fallon, is tell us the names of the roses that made it into the car to head south.
1: (laughs) So many, (laughs) (laughs) so many rose names. So, and that's, You know, it's really funny that you say that because I've kind of been, you know, telling myself and others that I'm on an unintentional sabbatical, Um, (laughs) though I'm still working, you know, and uh, I think the roses that made it into the car were the roses that. I was the most excited about that maybe weren't selling or the most demanded, but roses that I wanted to bring into the world, um, into the greater world, into the flower market world, which is what you're referencing is when I would wake up at three o'clock in the morning and drive the car, my personal car, all the way into San Francisco um, before the city was buzzing to bring in these beautiful flowers. And one of the first roses I remember really bringing into the flower market and having someone just rush me for, <laughs> and she was, rushing me for peonies that's Uh. really what she thought that what they were and I was so delighted because she ran up to me and said are those pink peonies spoken for and I looked at her and I said these are roses have smell Mm. you know but they had that shape of a peony with a very they were large headed and the name was Yves Piaget and it's a beautiful rose with a picketed petal mm. a raspberry fuchsia pink with a silvery reverse on the petal so the underside of the petal when it flips over has this sheen to it and it's just a lovely rose with a beautiful floral fruity fragrance and it was named after a french watch designer Yves Boucher that was an ex- probably one of my first times I rolled the cart into the flower market and was like there's something special about these roses um that are grown in the glory of the sun and have this smell that is um, just not, it's not uh, regularly available on the market and um, it can't be cultivated in a greenhouse because of that direct sun to petal um, experience. Um, So that was one of the first roses that really made a stink at the flower market. Um, The next I think was uh, a rose that we, we at the farm would call Peter B. Um, its market name or its commercial name is called Honey Dijon. But it is uh, it was called Peter B because um, back in the early 90s, uh, when it was being cultivated in uh, the garden fields, it wasn't really a hot item. It uh, The name Honey Dijon comes from the color of the rose, and it is the color that you think it would be. It's like Honey Dijon mustard um, looks like a parchment paper. And <laughs> I had a woman from Texas come in once and she looked at this vase full of honey Dijon and she said, honey, these roses are spent. <laughs> I at her and I said, well, um, they're actually, they're grown like this and, um, you know, they're quite beautiful to me. And she just gave me this face and she lowered her voice and, I don't even know if I could say this on public radio, but she said uh, they look like baby shit, honey. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, well, you know." But um, this gentleman, a floral designer in Cleveland, Ohio, he um, loved this rose, and it sold much better under the trade name Peter B and was a little more sexier than Honey Dijon and a lot easier to sell to brides and floral designers under that name than Honey Dijon as well. Um, but yeah and then I think probably the most well-known rose, well there's two really um, that have been really exciting to see reemerge is uh, distant drums and that was a rose hybridized I believe in 1985. We were looking at the rose fields at the farm and we were not selling cut roses, and we could not compete with the South American uh, stems that were flown in and could be sold wholesale for a dollar twenty a stem. And uh, so we decided, you know, let's stop growing roses that can be grown in the greenhouse. And so I looked back into books, and I found this kind of odd rose called Distant Drums. And I, the pictures were vague. It looked muddy, but I was really excited about it. And... Um, So we bought 50 of them just as a test, and I could not keep them on on the plants at all. I was really butchering these poor things to sell these teeny bunches and sending them all across the country. Um, And I was very impressed to see these little plants that I just planted revive and throw out canes and really respond to a hard cut and uh, the next year wow lo and behold we ordered a couple hundred more and it really worked and then uh, the rose coco loco was released and i said this looks like a combo of distant drums and honey dijon let's give it a go and uh, that ballet slipper nude pink just really that has been used quite a bit i'm
0: jennifer jewell and this is cultivating place Fallon Shea is a rosologist, artist, and rose garden consultant at work on a book about roses. We'll be right back for more on her journey. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. This is a hard, weird, challenging, growing pain kind of season, isn't it? I'm not sure where you are at this moment, but from all of the emails and comments that are coming my way, many of us are home, and the entire structures of our lives are different now than they were just three months ago, which feels like three years ago. Many of us are dealing with fear and uncertainty, loss of work or change of work, and because we're human and living in this time much of how we see ourselves is wrapped up so tightly in our work, whatever that might be. We derive a great deal of our security around who we are through what we do. So it's a tricky, scary thing, economically just for starters, but also psychologically, when our work changes, or suffers loss, or contracts in ways we could not have foreseen. In the midst of all of this though, a lot of us are also finding ourselves gardening for the first time or again or ever more intensely, which is such a statement about our most essential fundamental instincts. What we turn to in times of uncertainty, what brings us joy, hope, comfort in gratifying, empowering ways, not depleting ways. This says as much about our identity as anything we've ever done. For me, listening to Fallon relate her story of being 19 and feeling lost and having that constant question, what am I going to do with my life, reverberating without answer in her head felt very, very timely to me. It's a question we all ask ourselves at various moments in our lives and right now, I think a good many of us are asking this question again and not seeing a clear answer. I certainly have no definitive answers for anyone on this. But for anything it might be worth, I will offer out this observation from my own life and the lives of the 75 women in the earth in her hands. The lives of the many, many plant-loving people I've interviewed here over these many years now. There can be a powerful, transformative connection between this age-old, scary, lifelong question, what am I going to do with my life now, and the instinct to turn to the life of the garden or the more-than-human around us. This is what I mean when I talk about gardeners being intersectional agents for change in the world. This is one of those intersections. And this, scary and seriously uncomfortable as it might feel in the moments of transformation, this is also, possibly, eye opening, expanding, exhilarating, and relieving. What do I really want from this life? What can I really bring to this life? I look at my roses blooming hosting aphids and that disgusting caterpillar I told you about last week. And then I look at the birds and the ladybugs coming in to eat the aphids and the caterpillars. I look at my vegetable garden, feeding me and my girls at least something of our vegetable intake each week. I look at my seedling native cottonwood tree, who chose the westernmost corner of my small suburban lot to site itself and which now offers food and shelter for creatures. It offers me shifting seasonal music in its rustling leaves, different in each of their stages of growth. A different sound for the small green leaves and then the mature, thick, dark green leaves. And then a completely different song for the autumnal leaves as they turn color and shed their carbon. It now offers shade for the house in the heat of the summer, and following that, an abundance of those same musical leaves for me to add to the compost bins to decompose and then feed the garden soil throughout the year. These other lives remind me to reframe the questions. Once we've gotten past the sadness and the pain, and we've mourned the loss, we can then edge slowly away from panic and gently towards creative adaptation. To hear the questions not as, what am I going to do with my life? But more as, how can I use this moment and this space to re-envision what I get to do with my life as a contributor to the whole of life? Needing and wanting to touch the source of our own survival in even small ways might be what gets many of us to the garden in times like these. But it's the incredibly transformative life force we find there, a force which models answers to some of life's best questions with concepts like growth, seasons, cycles, experimentation, artistry, and spirit. That's what will keep us there, gardeners, intersectional cultivators of our places for life. May there be some joy and rejuvenation in this global question and answer session for us all. Now back to our conversation with Fallon Shea on roses and life and the questions of life and the love of all of these. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back to our conversation with Rose devotee, artist, and cultivator Fallon Shea. We left off with Fallon discussing the fashion swings of floral tastes in form, color, and fragrance. She described the versatile, though muted, colors of Honey Dijon, Distant Drums, and Coco Loco, and, as we come back, she discusses the longtime standard bearer in our gardens and the trade, the simple and elegant Sally Holmes
1: so Sally Holmes is you know speaking more to our relationship with kind of what's old is new again, always kind of the, everything kind of circles back um, to revive itself in fashion some um, Sally Holmes is a single, open-faced rose, so she is graced with only five petals, um, but a beautiful, what I call a happy face, so she opens up and you can see her beautiful golden stamens, but it begins as apricot bud, and not just one bud on the stem, but three to five to 35 on the stem, um, this rose is not only amazing in the vase, but I once had a friend tell me that I'm going to die rubbernecking looking at roses, and it's probably because of Sally Holmes. Um, more often than not, you'll see it and you'll think, wow, what is that? Rhododendron or hydrangea. You won't even think it's a rose because of the mass. Of flowers and its coverage and its living wall effect almost. Um, and it's covered with pollinators. Bees love it because of the excess. And it also has um, kind of like a clove or a myrrh scent to it that is really, yeah. it's light. It's not in your face, but it, it may, makes you come closer and it wasn't on it wasn't on the cut flower trade for a very long time cut it in a bud Um, it ships very well and it lasts a very long time and that kind of is giving it gives designers a little more of that I hate to say it but rustic kind of country gathered from the garden um, very easy look yeah, it's just it's amazing. And in the garden, you can put it in partial shade. It doesn't need uh, six to eight hours of sun. You can put it in dappled light, and it will grow. It's a it's a great rose.
0: It's a great rose. The diversity of form and the diversity of fragrance that you have already dipped into for us is, I think, that speaks to the the enduring appeal of roses. And you mentioned this earlier um, as well, or you touched on it, is that you were growing this whole range of roses up in interior northern California, which is warmer and drier, not that far inland, but much further inland than you are now. And not inland like me, where it's 115 <laughs> all summer long, but inland for, for um, you know, off the immediate coast. So the their ability to adapt to a wide variety of climatic and soil and water um, conditions is remarkable for a plant that in many people's minds is really, really fussy. Um, and I think your – your. Um, Your description of being in relationship with it and stopping your own neurotic, obsessive nervousness in the relationship and just relaxing a little, that's part of it. Like if we relax and we're not so uptight about if every leaf is perfect, if every, you know, whatever it might be, if we relax on what we expect out of our roses, they give us back like in triple.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of our affinity as humanity for the rose itself and why it's possibly been around for so long. It's an innate ability for resilience. I mean, we started, our relationship with roses was survival. It was not for the blossom. It was for their hips, you know, but like you said, roses grow everywhere. I mean, the common names for species roses describe where they are from. The field rose, the beach rose, the swamp rose, the alpine rose. There is truly a rose for everywhere. <laughs> I mean, they, there's desert roses. Um, they're quite incredible. One, the family is enormous. But
0: two, the actual genus Rosa is, God, I want to say it's one of the largest, one of the largest genera. And they are native or there are native varieties on, I want to say every continent except Antarctica. Am I right when I say that? they there actually you are quite
1: right um i believe that there are even species in the arctic um there's an arctic rose so i think almost every continent
0: <laughs> you know i i live in a place that thankfully i can grow roses without a lot of input without a lot of fuss i have a little black spot but um you know, and sometimes I've had one that got rust in the wrong location. and But really, they're not as needy. They do not need as much water once established as people tend to give them. I don't feed mine anything except compost and they're happy as clams. So this finickiness I think is something that we have to get over, not them. Um, and if and, and there are ones that are needier, but you will you will recognize them in your garden and decide not to grow them. I mean I think that's that's the kind of rule that you need to follow um, right and, and that's a
1: little bit of a heartbreak you oh, know I it can mean, be. You, see, yeah. you see something that someone else has and you want it in your garden' <laughs> yeah. so bad. You know, I mean, yeah. I would joke with people, just, I think your roses are more attractive because A, I don't have to grow, I don't have to deal with them. And B, I can't grow that in my yard as well as it is here. And, yeah. you know, you kind of have to have peace over that. Like, yeah. okay, I'm going to come visit your Gertrude Jekyll because mine's struggling.
0: <laughs> you know, it's like, all right. yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah You yeah. can't
1: have it all, but, you know.
0: I told a friend that I was going to be having this conversation with you. And uh, she said... I didn't even know there was a word called a Rosarian. Um, and so describe for people. I tried to stay away from that word. <laughs> but I think it's a good word because it gives you, I mean, I, it, it, you know, in the wrong – context. It can sound sort of snotty and elitist and sort of, you know, like a little rarefied, but it's somebody who is dedicated to the study of roses and is learning and has spent a lot of time learning how they grow, their history, their best cultivation, and and all of the things that you are indicating that you have spent time figuring out. Who takes a hard cut? Who doesn't? Who ships well? At what point in in the Life cycle, will they ship well? These these kinds of things, um, because they are an influential flower, both artistically but also economically. Um, and that cliche, which you referred to early in the conversation, of the single red rose imported to us from far, far away under cultivation methods that are probably dubious at best and work conditions that are dubious at best for the people who are cultivating them, that is not an economy that we as heartfelt gardeners and flower lovers here want to support. We, you know, And so we have seen this fantastic revival of Flower farms in the, the manner of Aaron Benzacane and Florette. We have seen the slow flowers movement under Deborah Prinsing really take off. And we have seen this return to a desire by gardeners and floral designers for living, breathing, dynamic plants and flowers that show us their whole life. they show us their beauty and decay they show us their hips they show us their pollen stamens to feed the bees and butterflies and this whole life cycle in a floral arrangement is is what hooks us, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah it definitely pulls us deeper. I mean it's it's so interesting I mean that you and remark on that because I'm going back far, I mean, to our primal states, um, we've always, I think, had a relationship with plants, but roses were there with their shining hips that stood out in the barren plains that we foraged for nourishment. Um, we rarely saw their flowers, you know, and now the roses that we cultivate for cut are so far removed from that type of flower. Um, But we came to cultivate them and carry them with us around the world, wherever we went, like family and friends. And we relied on them to lift our spirits and, you know, soothe our wounds and calm our hearts. And we sent them along with our dead. And now we shape them into our gardens, into the confines of our own personal spaces Um, and we grow them for beauty, right? Um, We send them off to parties and celebrations, and hopefully they have some kind of meaning to in our lives. And I think that's, that's really what has kept me going is their deeper meaning, their deeper affection, and the possibility of their afterlife as well. I mean on a farm, you have a lot of waste. We don't like to talk about it as farmers, but if you don't, if a bloom opens faster than you can sell it, it's gone, you know, so what can you do without waste? Sure, it's up for the pollinators, but bringing that back, let's compost it, let's create art from it, um, let's bring it back to the earth, let's go back to making pulses and, um, concoctions with the parts of the flower and the hips um let's utilize them and I think we're kind of kind of how we touched on earlier all things (laughs) that are old come back again Mm -hmm. and I think it's uh there is a revival for coming back to the earth coming back to that kind of wild rose that we're kind of all seeking we're kind of smelling it out and she's just there waiting for us you know so (laughs) And she's a temptress. And, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. That can't be understated. <laughs> no, no.
0: So you also do garden and flower farm consultations to help people succeed with incorporating these into their own spaces and their work. And you do workshops on floral design. Talk to us a little bit about the garden and flower farm consultations that you do and, and what's at the heart of that for you.
1: So I think the heart of the helping others grow roses is a part of what we discussed earlier is breaking those myths about the rose being the diva um, and our relationship with it and how much they demand and kind of their versatility and their function. So we, most people come to me looking for, to build a rose garden or they want a rose farm. So, or cut flower farm rather. So a part of my, what I've taken on as my job is to kind of be a rose liaison. Like I understand that you want roses and and this is what you want. You want fragrance and beauty, but how can we bring it to also function and not just look like a rose field, but look like a living garden. Um, And so that's kind of where I teeter um, in my teachings is, trying to get people to yes, we want to do cut flower farms and and we want people to grow roses. I really, really want people to grow roses. whether that is the rose that they think that they want to grow or that's the rose <laughs> that um, they need to grow or would be best suited for their plot or their um, their lifestyle even like how much time do you want to invest and, and all that. and I think a part of my job is to, Um, debunk a lot of the fuss so when I first started out learning about roses I mean I didn't know anything about growing nothing but when I was first learning roses um, I needed to know why so there were seemed to be a lot of rules with roses Um, they need to be cut at a 45 degree angle Um, I needed to know why like is there science behind that or is that you know kind of A rule. And so the more I got to experience, um, I've been growing for 13 years now, and I've played around with it and I looked at it scientifically, I've looked at it holistically. And, um, you know, what results do you want? Do you want to fertilize with a liquid fertilizer that comes in a can every four weeks, or would you like to compost twice a year? (laughs) You tell me, you know what I mean? Um, What suits your lifestyle better? Um, Would you like to split ends over a 45 45 degree angle, Um, which is actually, if you think about it, more surface area for a plant to heal than a straight cut. So a part of that is kind of easing, easing the pressure, letting the pressure off a little. And yeah, these are plants. They want to live. I've had mow and blow gardeners come through properties and take roses to the ground and have them come back. So really, roses are very, very strong.
0: I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Fallon Shea is a rosologist, artist, and rose garden consultant growing along the Southern California coast. Among other things, she is currently at work on a book about roses. We'll be right back for more with Fallon. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, here are some things I am seriously grateful for in these times. Access to the outdoors, the sun, the rain, the flowering plants, the patience of trees, the hugeness of the big umbrella of a sky over us all. I am grateful for the range of the human voice. I am grateful for public radio and public libraries and independent journalism and nurseries and bookstores. I'm grateful for the United States Post Office. All of these allow for connection for our distance human voices. They allow for varying expressions and explorations of this connection. In a slightly more complicated way, I am grateful for technology and the internet. It allows me to speak to you and you to reach back to me. And at their best, these kinds of connections allow for new kinds of connections and exploration and innovation in these new times. I am grateful for roses, the whole family of them, from the wild strawberry, to the eating pie and cider apples, to the vase beside my bed full of decadent blooms, sending me sweetly to sleep. I'm sure you have your own list of gratitude. I'd be happy, honored, to read it or listen to it if you feel like sharing. You know how to reach me. And now, back to this week's journey story, shared by the creative, artistic, and heartfelt Valenche. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. A rosarian is someone dedicated to the study of roses, their history, their forms, their best cultivation practices. Roses are influential flowers, artistically, culturally, horticulturally, and economically. As we come back, Balanchet, roseologist and rose devotee, describes how she moved from working in a monoculture rose environment to one in which she helped institute and care for a diversity of interplanted flowering plants and herbs, along with the roses, for the best overall balance of soil life and wildlife.
1: Welcome back. I've gone from just really talking about roses to talking about companion plants um, like lissums and oreganos planted at the base of the roses to help the biodiversity and um, really enabling those bugs (laughs) to do their job and they create if you introduce um, other insects and other bacteria they will fight one another they will press out um, bad pathogens and insects and they will, we, they will make balance. And I think it's really important for us to have not only variety, but to mm-hmm. bring in those other players that are going to really not only complement plants, but uh, benefit and be real companions um, together. Yeah. We have a lot
0: of leafcutter bees here in mm. my part of the, the world. And they are a wonderful native uh, pollinating bee um, w- who we need to support with everything we have. And they make those perfect little round circles in the um, leaf uh, leaves yes. of several different kinds of plants, but they love my rose leaves. Yes. And once you realize that it's not a pest but a friend mm-hmm. then you see those little holes in the leaves as something lovely like a little calling card left by a friend right not as a not as a, a disaster right. waiting to happen right
1: my 5 year old friend calls them clues we've had We've had friends. We've had friends on the roses, you know, and uh, he sees caterpillar marks on the flowers and he goes, something's eating your roses. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yes, we're not alone here, my friend. Right. You know, exactly. I have to constantly tell him, we're not alone out here. <laughs> no, no. Um, okay, so the 45 degree
0: angle, not as big a deal as you would you would say?
1: No. It has mean, been made I, to be? Because okay. this, for me, pruning... And I, you know, when I first started pruning scared the crap out of me, I was terrified of pruning because I knew that cutting the rose, you're taking away energy, the cane store energy. And I knew that I didn't quite know why we prune. And when I realized why we prune, which is for aesthetics, yes, partially for health, but mostly we've develop pruning to compact plants so when i realized that that it wasn't necessarily for the health of a plant that it was just for the confines of my garden and putting many plants in a certain space and keeping them in an area that i kind of was like okay like i can do this but the 45 degree angle really bothered me because the only reasons i could hear about why you would cut out a 45 degree angle is to help the rose it would promote the growth in a certain direction mm. or the rain it rains sideways and this 45 degree angle helps the rain run off the cane uh just for me when you're pruning 10,000 plus roses just doesn't feel like necessary and so I kept looking for a reason like why why are we doing this why are we doing this and I couldn't find a great reason and um I spoke with someone who told me that I was actually exposing more of the surface area I expose more of the plant I make a bigger wound when I cut at a 45 degree angle that was my aha moment and uh, I ended up teaching pruning classes for years at um all over, but my main goal was to give people the confidence to go with shears towards a rose and not be scared. Right. Um, and not to be so concerned as to what angle you're going to cut them at, because more often than not, when you cut in a 45 degree angle, you actually risk cutting into the cells, the new growth cells, where the new growth node is. So, cutting at a straight angle actually. You know, if your prunes aren't pruners aren't sharpened, uh, you have less likelihood of um, having them splinter okay. or fray, and you can recut, and you won't compromise that new growth underneath. So a straight cut is where I'm all about, and I love I love to debate with people over <laughs> what's right and what's wrong, and to each their own. But honestly, I mean, it gives me great peace of mind to to just disregard that rule um, and just to cut it straight. Yeah.
0: The um, I love that and uh, it's always good to know that if you break one rule you are not going to go to rose hell as it were yeah um,
1: no there's not a special place in rose hell for you the, you're not that important I'm sorry and I said this to you uh, before we spoke by email
0: but um, my my roses are glaring at me right now from the garden <laughs> because they are wondering exactly when I'm going to get around to pruning them which they do in my small city garden they, they would like to be pruned and And um, they will survive without me paying even one whit of attention to them but they will um, look better and bloom more floriferously in their space next year if I give them a nice prune this winter
1: right and I just want to add one thing and a part of the reason why we prune and why um, it's really important for regions especially where foliage doesn't fall to the ground or leave the plant Um, a lot of other spots in the world and in the country they get frost or the plant will drop its foliage and that's great because all the pathogens and bad bacteria and fungi on those leaves will be gone right so if you don't have time to prune jennifer just try to take some of those leaves off but if they're not damaged or you know diseased then Don't worry about it. (laughs) Okay. And so on this same topic,
0: talk about the hygiene of cleaning up all the leaves around the bottom um, of each plant. Now, granted, I have black spots, so it's a good idea if I go ahead and clean them up so that it doesn't stay in the soil or bounce up to the plant with the rain in the spring and my winter rain, which we're still waiting for more. Um, Right. But – Like, especially if it's interplanted with, you know, I have calamintha and I have lavender and I have native manzanita and I have, Mm. you know, I have a lot Mm -hmm. of things that are at play with my roses. How worried should I be uh, about the hygiene of getting every single leaf out from underneath the plant?
1: I wouldn't. So I, I try not to fuss too much about it because if you think about it in the natural environment, leaves fall to the forest floor, to the prairie floor, or to the mountain floor, and actually create beautiful compost over time. It's how plants protect themselves and create a mulch. Um, Green leaves that fall to the ground are technically still alive, but they yellow pretty fast. And though some of the pathogens may be alive and may go to the soil, they do not overwinter. Some of them will, but I don't worry too much about that. Um, Like I said, I think in my relationship, I've gotten a little more relaxed with the roses. (laughs) I'm not so uptight and um, neurotic with them as I used to be. But, because I know, I mean, I have plants right now that mine are not pruned, and they're still blooming. I have seven roses right here. I'm looking at blooms on my desk, and it's February. So I mean, it's hmm. they're they're crazy. <laughs> they don't want to go to sleep. I would love for them to go to sleep, but they won't. But I think hygiene, as far as the leaves falling to the ground, I would say, unless you have a you know scale or you're finding ants farming, um, other insects like aphids, I would say, um, leave them be. Okay.
0: So I want to, I'm I'm very aware of our clock now. Um, and I really want to end um, with your floral design work and your selection work and that vase of seven blooms that is sitting on your desk. Um, <laughs> and just maybe... Give us some of your ethos for for what you're selecting for and how you are guiding others in floral design and selection and um, a few of the the other rose varieties or species that you're really excited about right now, Fallon.
1: Mm. There's so many. <sighs> There's so many. So for me... Um, my floral design, I've, I love floral design, but I started out, you know, drawing and sketching and painting, and that was my medium, but roses kind of become my palette now, and so it's so amazing because they offer such a wide range of form, shape, color, texture, even their foliages or their leaves are so diverse and their shapeliness of their stems. Um, So right now, I'm really looking into um, the tried and trues. So like I said, um, species roses or wild roses are very much on my radar right now. Um, But also kind of strange mutations that have happened over the years. So there's a rose called Viridiflora. It's a Chinese rose, and it was a mutation. It actually doesn't have any petals at all. The sepals have mutated to make a flower form. And it's also known as the green rose and it has these sweet little florets and of seed bills that we're going to call petal not petals but it, it looks like a flower and they're green and in the autumn when it gets cool they redden and they have this beautiful beautiful look to them and they do not look like a rose at all and I think that's kind of where I'm having fun right now because the pressure's off I don't have to sell cut stems to You know, for the survival of the farm right Mm -hmm. now, it's just, I'm, I'm, you know, not in that spot. And I love it because now I just get to have fun with it and say, hey, like, check this rose out, try it in a vase, you know, so I think that's more of where my designs are showcasing now. And now that the pressure's off, I get to have more fun, right? Right, so, right. <laughs> I'm getting to experiment with um, roses that I otherwise wouldn't have, quote unquote, had time for. Yeah. Because they, um, you know, maybe weren't going to ship or weren't going to hold up um, in transit or something like that. So now I get to focus on, you know, what roses can we grow that are a living shrub or a living living barrier or a habitat for birds and bees and other pollinators that we can also use their flowers, use their hip. Um, there's a rose that I'm really excited about, that a lot of people don't know about. Maybe they've heard of it. If you've read Shakespeare's Midsummer's Night Dream, you've heard of it. It's called the Sweet Briar Rose. And it's um, it's known as Rosa Eglantaria. Uh, it was formerly called Rosa Rubinosa, Um, but it's a remarkable rose and it kind of reminds us about their heritage and their relation to apples and strawberries. So the genus Rosa is related to apples and they have that single petaled pink flower with yellow stamens and their foliage is actually scented with fresh green apples. Mm -hmm. So it is beautiful little rose it's it's sweet it's maybe about two three inches wide it's very small but an entire stem instead of just being on the tip of the stem where we typically think of roses it's all along the cane and once those fall I mean they have several flushes in the spring but once those fall the petals they become these beautiful little cherry hips that are great in tea um if you pull out the seeds you can put them on your oatmeal throw them in a a smoothie and they're packed with vitamin c so focusing more on roses that have multifunctions. um this is the rose that can become like a thicket or a bramble if you have space you can just let it grow wild you don't even have to look at it and it'll it'll perform which is really lovely but also, um, because I'm by the beach, um, I have really gotten attracted to the Ragosa Roses. I don't know if you've heard oh, of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, Rosa Ragosa is the rose of the seaside. And it's mostly seen in our in the United States on the East Coast, grown, um, I think, Nantucket. It's literally grown in the sand dunes. And it has quilted, matte foliage, Again, a single five petal surrounded by uh, like chubby, very golden stamens that are rich with pollen. And um, the hips are huge. They're large, very fruity hips and uh, are so delicious and tart. And just the smell of them is like you know, it's hard to say fresh laundry right now because everyone has a different smell for their laundry, but it smells like freshness. Um, it's very heady, but also very fleeting at the same time. You put it to your nose and you're like, I think I just smelled clove or moss and then it's gone. And it's, it's really wonderful. And that rose actually is native to the coasts of Korea, Japan and Taiwan and has made its way here because it is so hardy and so wonderful and doesn't require a lot of water um but also can take the the uh, salt water air which is really nice um so those are those are two really great roses that I recommend and of course I always recommend uh, my friend Sally Holmes <laughs> yeah yeah
0: uh well
1: we I could talk to you
0: for for hours and hours Fallon and I I hope that we have the opportunity to do that but uh If you wanted to close with why you think this relationship you have with your roses and with the rose genus as a whole and its history and its call to you, why that is important in this day and age with our many, you know, divisions and challenges on all levels, what would that be? I
1: think there is a place for beauty. I mean, I think honestly, in relationship with the land, I think that for me, rose has given me meaning to someone who was lost and um, fragile. I think the rose, it symbolizes a vulnerability. And, but also it has thorns. So a menacing, strong, resilient quality. And I think, I think we need that. I think we need space for beauty. I think we need space for ourselves, but I think that seeing, seeing and appreciating that brings us closer to loving it, which hopefully brings us closer to moving us towards action and togetherness. And I've met incredible people through my journey with the rose, um, and I think that whether we have connection with the plant itself or other like-minded people around it, I think the rose and the realm of possibilities is just is endless.
0: Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and about this deep love of roses, which I share without any of your knowledge, but
1: an equal passion. (laughs) Thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate you having me. It's been such a pleasure.
0: Valenche is a rose devotee and roseologist currently making her life with roses in Southern California. Since the stay at home orders due to COVID-19, Fallon, like most of us, finds herself in this unfamiliar territory, which has both slowed and clarified our day-to-day lives, trying to process the pandemic along with the many other demands we might have. For Fallon, these include entomological work for the Department of Agriculture, caring for two elders, and being in the midst of writing a rose book. She recently shared with me, quote, now more than ever, I find myself retreating to my garden space and immersing myself in the reckless beauty of roses. Even if the majority of the time is spent just staring at them, I've marveled at a single petal longer than ever before, despite my short attention span these days. End quote. For more information on Fallon Shea, you can find her at fallonshay.com or follow along on her lovely rose journey on Instagram, where she is at Fallon Shea, Shea spelled S-H-E-A-A. For more information on good roses to grow in your region and how to care for them, look for the American Rose Society at rose.org or the International Rose Society, worldrose.org. I hope you also had a chance to listen to the charming and knowledgeable Michael Marriott from David Austin Roses, where on their website, davidaustinroses.com, there is a whole world of rose information and beauty to explore. Join us again next week when Cultivating Place ventures into a backyard cultivation new to me, but age old in the world, when we're joined by Joanna Silver former garden editor of Sunset Magazine and author most recently of Growing Weed in the Garden. Join us. The earth is in all of our hands. Bring your joy and take good care. Together we grow better. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio, now also heard weekly on KWMR in Point Reyes Station. Over on cultivatingplace.com this week, make sure to check out the many lovely rose images from Fallon Shea's Rose Journey. They will lift anyone's spirits. And thank you for listening. In this strange time of distance and even isolation, our gardens bring us closer together to one another and to what we find of value in this world. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fidler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.